chills up my spine. So, so thanks to Mark and the worship team. And good morning to you. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us here at Prairie View this morning. Now, as I was thinking this past week about this sermon, it struck me that, at least in my opinion, New Year's is a somewhat strange holiday. There isn't as much of a set procedure and a set tradition as there is with Christmas. I mean, you think about it, and most people celebrate Christmas in relatively similar, relatively predictable ways. Not quite so much with New Year's. And on top of that, while many people think New Year's is just as important as Christmas, if not more so, some people hardly celebrate New Year's at all. For example, we went to bed at 11.45 last night. We just didn't want to stay up. It wasn't that big a deal to us. I think part of what makes New Year's somewhat strange, at least in my mind, is that we're pulled in two different directions on New Year's. As we celebrate, should we look back on what happened in 2016 or should we look ahead to 2017? Which one is it? New Year's is a transitional holiday in that we're really kind of trying to celebrate two things at once. The end of one era and the beginning of another. So in light of today being such a transitional day, there is one book of the Bible that came to my mind that is also very transitional as well. And that's the book of Deuteronomy. Now, without question, the biggest transition in the book of Deuteronomy comes at the very end. That's when Moses, after 40 plus years of leadership over God's people, dies. But then after Moses dies, Joshua takes over as his successor. So when you read the book of Deuteronomy, you're reading the story of one era coming to an end and another beginning for God's people. And in that story, you will find lots of reflecting on the past right along with lots of looking ahead to the future. Sounds kind of similar to what we're doing today, doesn't it? We look back at 2016 and forward to 2017. Now, what we read this morning in the book of Deuteronomy occurs as Moses prepares the people to enter the Canaanite territory that God promised to them years and years and years earlier. The parents of these Israelites failed to enter the promised land in the past due to their sin and rebellion. But once this new generation of Israelites enters the promised land, they're going to have a new permanent home. They're going to have a clean slate, a fresh start, the same way lots of us view 2017. But before they begin this exciting new chapter of their lives, God gives the Israelites some vital instruction. In it, he reminds them of who he is, reminds them of who they are, and reminds them of what that means for their everyday lives in this new uncharted territory. And as we flip our calendars, preparing for our own new chapter, our own new era of life, Deuteronomy has instruction for us as well. So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of ours. And if you don't own a Bible, take one home as our gift to you. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that another year has gone. And I'm sure some of us look back at 2016 and 
There may have been wonderful things that occurred to us, wonderful blessings, wonderful events in our lives that we never want to forget. But then there are others of us who look back at 2016 and it was a very forgettable year. We don't want 2017 to be anything like what 2016 was. But Father, I pray that as we sit here this morning, regardless of whether the past year has been good or bad or forgettable or unforgettable, thank you for another year of life that we can wake up and breathe air, that we wake up and our brains function and our hearts are pumping and that we have oxygen in our lungs and we have blood in our veins and we have food in our stomachs and water to drink and and clothes and a roof over our heads. Thank you for all of those things that we so often take for granted. And Father, be with us as we prepare for a new year. I'm sure lots of us have big goals and dreams and plans and Some of those may come to fruition and some of them may not. But I pray that regardless of what 2017 holds, that we would submit ourselves to you, that we would give ourselves to you in love, give ourselves to you in trust, give ourselves to you in confidence, knowing that you have our best interests at heart, no matter what the future holds. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who died a long time ago. And yet his death so long ago is still what gives us hope, still what gives us joy Still what gives us promise for the future, even 2017, roughly, years later. We thank you for him. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, In a land flowing with milk and honey. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Moses re-emphasizes the commandment, statutes, and rules that God shared with the Israelites. Now, what exactly is Moses referring to when he says commandment, statutes, and rules? Well, most directly, he's referring to the Ten Commandments. They occur a second time in the Old Testament, just one chapter before this, Deuteronomy chapter 5. And God gave those Ten Commandments for lots of reasons, but as much as anything, they were God's way of introducing himself to the Israelites, fresh out of captivity in Egypt. The Ten Commandments told the Israelites and still tell us much about God's character and much about God's priorities. They also tell us that God wants his character and his priorities to become our character and our priorities as well. Okay, sounds good. But why does Moses go over this stuff again as the Israelites are about to enter the promised land? I mean, this is nothing new. This is stuff they've already heard, right? Well, a few reasons. Number one, God wants the Israelites to successfully conquer the promised land. And in order for that operation to be successful, they need to listen to what God says. Number two, God wants the Israelites to fear him, 
We saw those in that verse. Now, when we say the fear of God, we're not talking about terror of the unknown, like some imaginary monster under the bed. We're not talking about that moody family member who you're scared to confront about things because you have no idea how they're going to react. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about reverence and awe for the real God who saved them, who chose them and has revealed himself to them. Another reason that God gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments, that Moses revisits them again, is that God wants the Israelites to pass them on to their children so that generation after generation can continue to live in this promised land. And number four, God knows that once they enter the promised land, they're going to be faced with temptations that many of them have never faced before. Thus, a reminder of who God is and who they are, that's a good idea before they go in. But there's another big reason that God gives the Israelites his law, and another big reason that Moses reviews it for them here. And that's that God wants his people to flourish in their new home. He wants their days to be long. He wants things to go well with them. God wants the Israelites to flourish in the promised land, just like he wanted Adam and Eve to flourish in the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve rules to follow in the Garden of Eden because he wanted them to do well. He wanted their days to be long. The same is true of these Israelites. He wants this new chapter, this new era of their lives to be a beautiful chapter. A wonderful era of their lives, unlike the Israelites who came before them. God made a promise to their ancestors. God loves these people. God has chosen these people. They are his representatives to the nations around them. And the Israelites flourishing, well, that brings God glory. Now, it is possible to read those phrases about long days and things going well with them, and get some faulty ideas about how God blesses people. Some people use Old Testament passages like this one to argue for the prosperity gospel. That if you just do all the right stuff and say all the right things, you can then twist God's arm into giving you the stuff that you want. Everything's going to go well for you. Nothing is ever going to go wrong. But that's not what the passage is saying. More than anything, the passage simply indicates a revolutionary idea in our day and age. It's the idea that obedience to God is always in your best interest. Obedience to God is always in your best interest, no matter what happens in this life, no matter what the consequences may be. God doesn't give the Israelites the commandments, statutes, and rules because he's bored. He doesn't give them because he enjoys putting heavy burdens on people or just so God can have the thrill of being in charge. God is not some egotistic tyrant who simply likes to exercise power over those weaker than him. For these Israelites, God is a loving father who seeks their best interest. He's a powerful creator who wants his creation and wants his people to flourish according to his design. That's why passages like Psalm 19 and 119 exist. 
Those are psalms where the authors sing about how much they love God's law. They don't talk about God's law like it's some kind of awful ball and chain, some terrible burden. They talk about it as a source of truth, a source of wisdom, and a source of joy. So if you wanted to sum up Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 3, you could say this. As the Israelites stand on the cusp of a new beginning, God gives his people an old reminder of who he is, who they are, and of the obedience that should lead to in everyday life. Why? Because obedience to God is in their best interest. And because God wants them to flourish. That was true as the Israelites prepared to enter the promised land a really long time ago. And that's still true today as we, God's people, prepare to enter 2017. So let's pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, moving forward in the passage. We read there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That passage, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. It's often called the Shema. Shema is the word for hear, the very first word in verse 4. Now, these verses would have been recited multiple times a day by a pious Jewish person in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament. Just to show how important this passage is, in Mark chapter 12, when a scribe asked Jesus what the greatest commandment is, this passage is one of the passages that Jesus cites. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. But think about that phrase that occurs in this passage. That phrase, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's think a little bit more deeply about that. Because we just read a few verses ago that God wants us to fear him. Okay, that's true. We read a few verses ago that God wants us to obey him. All right, that's true too. But this phrase tells us that God doesn't just want our fear. He doesn't just want our obedience. God wants all of us. God wants our love. God wants our love for him to permeate every single aspect of our being. Every inch of our lives, every thought that runs through our mind, every single beat of our heart. That's what God desires. God showed great love for the Israelites and freeing them from slavery in Egypt. He's shown you great love by sending his son to die on the cross for sinners. And what we read here is that God wants us to love him. God wants the Israelites to love him because he loved us and he loved them first. We also see in these verses that that pure and complete love that God is seeking. That can't be contained to just some private inner sensation. 
A love like this is a love without limits. A love that is on your hands, on your foreheads, on your conversation when you're sitting, when you're standing. It's engraved on the entrance to your home. It's the conversation around your dinner table. It's the kind of love that your family notices. The kind of love that your co-workers see. The kind of love that your community is aware of. Because when someone loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, like this passage commands the Israelites to, when someone really loves God like that, you don't have to guess what matters most to them. You spend five minutes around that person, and you know that they love God above anyone and anything else. Now, as we move forward in the passage, verses 10 through 15, God warns the Israelites about the temptation to forget him once they've entered the promised land. All this newly inherited wealth could take their eyes away from the one true God who wants their hearts. And when your eyes are taken away from God because of your wealth, it's then a lot easier for your eyes to land on some other God. One of the gods of the surrounding nations. Now, it's important to note again that God doesn't just want you to fear him. God doesn't just want you to obey him. God wants your devotion, your heart to belong to him and nobody else. Imagine with me that you're married and you've got a really good marriage. Let's say you've been married for 10 or 15 years and things are great. You've been through ups and downs together. You've made memories together. You've accomplished great things. You've overcome great obstacles. You've maybe had a couple kids. You've built a family. And your marriage seems to be going perfectly. But then one day your spouse comes to you and says, hey, we need to talk. Why don't you sit down? So you sit down. You're concerned. You're nervous. And your spouse looks at you and says, hey, look, I've been meaning to tell you this for some time. I don't really want to be with you. Like, I'd, I'd rather be with somebody else. I mean, you're, you're fine, like, you're okay, but I'd rather be with somebody else. How would you react to that? You'd probably be heartbroken. You'd be devastated at that moment. But then your spouse says to you, well, hold on. Don't cry. Don't worry. I'm not going to divorce you. I'm not going to leave you. Nothing's going to change because I'm your wife. I'm your husband. And... I'm still going to fulfill all my responsibilities. I'm still going to help pay the bills. I'm still going to help raise the kids. I'm still going to help manage the household. I'm going to fulfill all the responsibilities I said I was going to do. I'm going to fulfill my duty to you as a spouse. I just don't really love you. You just don't really have my heart. But I'm still going to be around because we got a good thing going here. Would you be content with that? Probably not. Because you don't just want somebody who fulfills their responsibilities. You don't just want somebody who does all the right things and says all the right things and jumps through all the right hoops. You want someone who really loves you. You want that person's devotion. You want that person's heart. And in passage after passage in the Old Testament, we see God grieved by people who are obedient on the outside. Jump through all the right hoops, say all the right things, do all the right stuff, obey all the right laws. They might even fear him. But deep down on the inside, 
They're far from him. They haven't really given it God their heart. They might give God their fear. They may even give God their obedience. But God wants our hearts. God wants our devotion. Moses reminds the people as they enter this new chapter of life that God wants every single bit of who they are. The other stuff that God wants, the fear, the obedience, the flourishing, those things will flow out of that love that God desires. Now, as the passage continues, Moses shares more of what God desires of the Israelites in the promised land. He warns them not to put God to the test, not to forget what God did for them in Egypt. Another reminder to pass down his laws to their children. And by the time the Old Testament is complete, all the commandments, all the statutes, all the rules, you're looking at 613 commandments. 365 negative commandments. Don't do that. And 248 positive commandments. Now you hear that number and it sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But allow me to suggest something. And that's this. Obeying all those rules, 613 of them, that's not actually the challenging part of what we read in the Old Testament. I mean, if you give people a list of 613 do's and don'ts, they can probably learn to obey it pretty well over time. Might take a little bit of practice, might be some bumps in the road, but they can pretty well get the hang of it. The real problem for the Israelites, and the real problem for us, isn't the number of commandments. It's that whole thing about God wanting our hearts. God wanting our whole lives. I mean, let's think about it. Let's say hypothetically that you obey all the rules. You do jump through all the right hoops. You follow all 613 rules perfectly. Let's say that your love for God is complete and pure, the way God wants it to be in this passage. What happens then? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 24 and 25. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. It will be righteousness for us if we do all the stuff, if we follow all the laws, if we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. It will be righteousness for us. But if you know anything else about the rest of the Old Testament... The Israelites don't do it. They couldn't love God and obey God the way he told them to. And when you think about it, the truth is that none of us can either. None of us has any righteousness that we can cling to, like verses 24 and 25. But here's the hope. There is one man whose love for God is pure and complete, and thus his obedience is perfect. And that man's name is Jesus. In John 4, verses 31 through 34, the disciples approach Jesus and they're encouraging him to eat because it's been a long day. He's been teaching. He's got to be hungry, right? But then Jesus responds and says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Think about that. Jesus looks his disciples in the eye and tells them, you know what matters more to me than my own physical survival? You know what matters more to me than food, the thing that keeps my physical body alive? What matters to me more is obedience to God. Whoa. John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says of God, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Perfect obedience is what we see with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness as he prepares to begin his ministry. And Satan specifically tempts Jesus to do two things that Deuteronomy 6 condemns. Satan tempts Jesus to put God to the test, throw yourself off the temple, see if God will save you. Jesus refuses. Satan tempts Jesus to worship him over God for the sake of earthly power. And yet again, Jesus refuses. And then finally, look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Jesus preaches for almost three entire chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And it closes out with these verses. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, what do you think that means, as one who had authority? What was so different about Jesus' teaching? What was so different about his delivery that it made him stick out from all the other religious teachers of the day? Well, maybe, just maybe, I like to think, that part of the reason these people were so blown away by Jesus' teaching is because when they heard Jesus speak, when they heard Jesus preach and teach, for the first time ever, They were hearing someone who really, truly did love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Israelites could not and would not fully love God in that way. And the truth is, neither have you and neither have I. And the very thing that God wants, our hearts, they are corrupted and tainted by sin. And the decay that happens in our hearts works its way out to our words and to our deeds. But thankfully, God has provided a Lord and Savior who was untouched by the corrosive effects of sin. There is one Israelite who loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. To the point of dying on a cross out of obedience to God. And that death occurred for us, people who don't obey, people who don't listen, people who often don't love God the way God desires of us. Christ died for us, the one righteous Israelite, and he becomes righteousness for us. So our prayer today. As we stand on the cusp of 2016 and 2017, looking back and looking forward at the same time, our prayer this morning is this, that in the same way that people who heard Jesus speak were blown away by his authority, that our hearts would be moved through the knowledge of what Christ did for us. Our prayer is that hearing this message of Jesus dying for sinners like us, 
would ignite in our hearts the kind of love for God that we simply can't muster up on our own. And as people who sit here, having responded to the gospel, we ask the Holy Spirit to make us into the people who God calls us to be. Make us into people who share God's character and priorities. Make us into people who fear God. Make us into people who obey God. Make us into people who abandon our idols. Make us into people who pass on our knowledge of God to our children. And to make us into people who really, truly love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. That's how Jesus loved God. That's how Jesus still loves God the Father. And that love drove Christ to the cross for sinners like you and like me. So I pray that as we look on the love that God has for us, as we look on the love that Christ has for us, as we look on the love that Christ has for his Father, that that same love would grow and develop and bear fruit in our own lives and in 2017. Let's pray. Father, we read this passage, Deuteronomy 6, and the challenge, the command is daunting. Because so often we don't love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We might love you in some areas of our lives. We might love you in a few other areas of our lives, too. But our love for you is all too often imperfect. It's all too often less than pure, less than complete. All too often we love other things more than we love you. But, Father, thank you for Jesus the one person who really, truly did fully and completely and perfectly love you. Thank you that he died on the cross for us, that he is our righteousness, that he is our joy, that he is our deliverance, that he is our hope. So, Father, as we enter a new year, I pray that we would be reminded of what your son did for us, but that we would also be challenged and encouraged to wake up every single day and turn our hearts and turn our lives over to you, to give you every single part of us. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. If you have any questions about our church, if you have any prayer requests, if you have any other concerns that you'd like to talk with an elder about, feel free to do that at the end of our service during the song. But at this time, I'm going to turn it over to Craig, and he will kick us into our time of communion.